0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners of our broadcast know, each and every week... A guest and I discuss the weekly parasha, the section of the Torah that will be read in synagogues this week, concluding on uh, Shabbat. This week, the Jewish community begins reading a new book of the Torah, the third book of the Torah. In Hebrew, it's called Vayikra. In Greek, it's called Leviticus. Let me give you an overview of the first portion, which also is entitled Vayikra. This portion, or parasha, begins at the uh, Leviticus 1, 1, and is a lengthy portion continuing for five full chapters of Torah. God calls Moses from the tent of meeting and communicates to him the laws of the korbanot, the sacrifices, the animal and meal offerings brought into the sanctuary or the tabernacle. These include what is known as the ascending offering or the olah, that is wholly raised to God by the fire atop the altar. There are five varieties of meal offerings known as mincha, prepared with fine flour, olive oil, and frankincense. The peace offerings, known in Hebrew as shlamim, whose meat was eaten by the one bringing the offering, after parts are burned on the altar and parts are given to the kohanim, the priests who are the sacrificial cult officiants. There are different types of sin offerings, known in Hebrew as chatat, brought to atone for transgressions, committed erroneously by the high priest, the entire community, the king of Israel, or the ordinary Jew. There are also guilt offerings, ashamim, brought by one who has misappropriated property of the sanctuary, who is in doubt as to whether he has transgressed a divine prohibition, or has committed a betrayal against God by swearing falsely to defraud a fellow human being. The book of Leviticus is, of course, chock full of descriptions of the sacrificial cult. And one of the most significant questions is, inasmuch as the synagogue, the temple in Jerusalem, has lain dormant since 70 of the Common Era, how will we understand the importance of reading from this parashah, Vayikra, and from the book itself? With me this morning to discuss this parasha is one of the more thoughtful rabbis of our generation. Rabbi Eric Wisnia was rabbi of Congregation Beit Chaim in New Jersey for nearly 42 years, retiring in 2019, and now serves as rabbi emeritus. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, and earned a bachelor's degree in religious thought from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He was ordained at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, Ohio, in 1974, and served as assistant rabbi at Congregation Shomer Emunim in Toledo, Ohio, before uh, transferring to Congregation Beit Chaim. He received a Doctor of Divinity from Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in 1999. It is with great pleasure that I invite Rabbi uh, Wisnia to chat with you, the audience, about Parashat Vayikra. Rabbi Wisnia, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts.
1: Thank you, Rabbi Garden. It is a pleasure to be back with you and your audience.
0: Well, we are uh, ecstatic that you have agreed to chat with us again. And so let's begin with Vayikra. As you heard in my introduction, one of the questions is, how in a uh, 2,000-year history with the temple no longer being uh, a viable uh, locus of sacrificial cult, do we understand the importance of this book?
1: Well, it's, it's a good question, Rabbi. And um, to tell the truth, it's really a rather gooky, strange portion, because it goes into great detail about how to make these animal sacrifices and meal sacrifices and how to dash the blood all over the place and burn it up and what parts you eat and what parts you don't eat. And then to top it all off, we can't do this anyway because the temple in Jerusalem no longer exists. So it's like totally theoretical. And you might ask the question, so why are we bothering with all this rigmarole? And that's a good question, but there seems to be an answer as well.
0: Ah, is there an answer beyond it's simply tradition? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Because this is a tradition that you can't observe.
1: So try as you will. There's no temple in Jerusalem to make these sacrifices. And since, as you mentioned, in the year 70, the Romans destroyed our temple, uh, we haven't been doing this. So the question now is why do we even bother? And the answer, I think, is in the title of the third book of the Torah and the title of this parashah, Vayikra. Vayikra means, and he called. And in this portion, God is calling to the Jewish people and saying, I want you to sacrifice. Now the specifics of the sacrifices are interesting and it's well worth reading and understanding, but it doesn't really deal with uh, our lives too much, except that when one looks at the type of sacrifices and realizes why people did this, in a sense, what this meant was Put your money where your mouth is. In other words, it's one thing to say, Hooray, God, we love you. Yeah, well, you know, talk is cheap. The question comes, what do you do about that? Do you do good? Do you do right? Do you observe the commandments? Oh, I believe in God. I just break every one of his commandments. Well, if that's the case, I don't know what it means to believe in God. The point is to do good, do what God wants. If we look at these sacrifices, we have to realize that the uh, averages were like, they not carry a wallet with money in it. They didn't have paper currency. They didn't pay for things in money. It was a barter system. One generally, only the kings had gold and coins. Most normal people did not have money. So what it, animals, Animals and produce were their money. That was the, the, the currency. And so when you wanted to say thank you to God, you would make a sacrifice of an animal. And this was expensive, you know? Animals were not cheap. This was large currency. And you would burn it on the altar, and the priests would have some, and someone does it for. When you did something bad, You would sacrifice an animal. You know, today, when we do something wrong, um, Rabbi, we uh, go to the synagogue and we look sad and we say, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, really, we're sorry we got caught. We're not so sorry we did it.
0: So are are you suggesting that if you had your druthers, you'd reinstitute the sacrificial cult? um, Yes, Stephen. What I would do, I would put an ashtray on the middle of
1: my altar in my synagogue and I would make you, when you would say you're sorry, you have to come up and take a hundred dollar bill and burn it in that ashtray, not make a hundred dollar donation to the synagogue and then say, Oh, look at me. I'm charitable. No, Just take a hundred dollars and burn it up. How quick would you be to do that sin again?
0: Well, given inflation, we might be looking at more than a (laughs) hundred dollars. I think you're right.
1: And then again, when I want to say thank you, like my, my, uh, my, uh, my daughter has a, a grandchild, um, what do I do? I invite my family and we all go to the synagogue and I sacrifice a bagel and some lox and we have a nice meal and we say, thank you, God. And I feed everybody. So in a sense, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. And that's really the point of the animal sacrifice cult. To put your money where your mouth is, you say you're sorry, mean it. Let there be some cost. You say thank you, mm. you know. Invite the family, feed them. You see, you want to take care of world
0: poverty, feed the poor. Put your money where your mouth is. And I so think that's in the in of in reframing this as uh, a wonderful uh, phrase. Put your money where your mouth is. Um. Listeners who've um, attended to the show before or previously know that the Hebrew word for sacrifices is korbanot, and that the Hebrew root of kuf, bet, resh seems to indicate...
1: Way, kuf, resh, Kuf, resh, but? Bait. You said kuf, resh, it's kuf, resh. Oh, correct. It, it's not...
0: Karev. 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 Um, So um, it appears that that root uh, indicates some directionality of coming closer to something. Uh, And most people uh, think that the Corbinode are a method of coming closer to God. Would your um, metaphor of putting your money where your mouth is uh, fit? That understanding of the definition of Korbanot?
1: Totally. Totally. I see it in direct line. In fact, that's the point. By putting your money where your mouth is, you are fulfilling God's will. God is calling, Vayikra. We now have to have a response and respond to God to come closer to God's word, to come closer to God's will, and do something. It's not just saying, Oh, I'm sorry. It's not just saying, Oh, yeah, God, we love you a lot, and then walking out of the synagogue or church and ignoring everything God wants. The question is doing. It's doing. It's something, an action. And I like the idea of focusing on that of bringing you closer. God is calling. The question is, Are we going to answer? Are we listening?
0: Well, When it comes to listening, this week also has an unusual call to us. Uh, Every week, the Jewish people read a section of Torah. That's known as the parashiot. But a number of times during the year, the Shabbat is designated as a special Shabbat, Uh, in which there is a uh, new haftarah that replaces the previously assigned haftarah. This week's Shabbat is called Shabbat Zachor. Every year, the Shabbat before the festival of Purim, We, which is uh, a festival to celebrate the foiling of Haman the Amalekite's plot to destroy the Jewish people. The weekly Torah portion by Yikra, in this case, is supplemented with the uh, reading of Zachor, remembering from Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19, in which we are commanded to remember the evil of Amalek, and to eradicate it from the earth. Um, When the Israelites left Egypt, no nation dared pick a fight with them, but the Amalekites, driven by hatred, uh, picked a fight with them. And so this Haftarah from 1 Samuel uh, discusses God's command to King Saul to destroy the people. There are four special readings before the month uh, of Adar. Uh, which begins soon. Uh, the other three being Shekhalim, Paran, and HaChodesh. Uh, and this is the, um, we've already had Shekhalim. So Rabbi, how do we understand this command to remember, and how is it associated with the holiday of Purim? Well,
1: I think there's a tremendous, uh, there's a direct line you know, the, 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 the portion we're reading in, in Leviticus is Vayikra, and God calls. And what I'm suggesting is that that demands a response from us. Now, next week we celebrate Purim. And uh, Purim, as you, uh, as you correctly uh, told us, is uh, to remember the, the sin of Haman, the uh, Haman, the Amalekite, who hated uh, Israel with a, a senseless hate and tried to kill us all men, women, and children. Um, and the, the joke is that Haman knew only one Jew. Haman knew one Jew, Mordecai. If you read the book of Esther, Haman knows this one Jew, Mordecai, who won't bow down to him. And Haman hates his gut. And Haman says, I'm going to kill him and all of his people, too. And your little dog, Toto, too. You know, and he says, i want to kill all the Jews. So he goes to the king. Uh, it, it's a really silly story, actually. It's portrayed in a very strange way in which uh, the king is kind of a drunken thought, um, and he marries, uh, he marries he wants to have a beauty contest. He marries the most beautiful girl in the kingdom, who is a, a Jewish girl uh, by the name of Hadassah, who hides the fact that she's Jewish. She takes a Persian name. She calls herself Esther, which is thinly veiled Ishtar the Persian goddess of fertility, and she hides the fact that she's Jewish. And so she, in a sense, leaps her way to the top and becomes queen of Persia, totally assimilated, doesn't do anything Jewish, doesn't give a damn about anybody but herself, and she's the hero of the story. And they ask, how is this woman a paragon of virtue? How is this woman worthy of emulation? Well, frankly, most of the story, she's not. But then, things change. She's related to the one Jew that Haman knew, Mordecai, the one who wouldn't bow down to Haman. Mordecai is a, a good Jew. He's observant, and he follows his religion, and he's a nice boy, does his job, keeps his head down. The king likes him, but Haman can't stand him.
0: Well, Haman. in fact, uh, there are only two Jews Identified by name in this whole story, correct? Right, right. Just You'd, right. Just fun. Mordechai and his uh, niece—I think—is how we describe her. Um, right. Right. and and they're the only named Jews, right? So, and neither one has a very Jewish name, but he's calling, she calls herself
1: Ishtar, and he's right. named Mordechai, which is Marduk the Babylonian god, that's why they call him Mordecai Jew, because from the name Mordecai, you'd never know he was a Jew. But he was a Jew, and he was a proud Jew. The real focus is on Esther, who is not a proud Jew. In fact, she does nothing worth emulating until the plot gets serious. Haman decides to kill all the Jews. And Mordecai goes to his cousin or niece, Esther, and he says to her, He sends word and says, look, Esther, honey, nobody knows you're a Jew, you're hiding in the palace, and the king has said he's going to kill all the Jews. And Esther says, well, that's not going to affect me, because I'm safe, I'm here in the palace. And Mordecai says to her something that's fascinating and makes the whole book worthwhile. He says to her, why is it that God has favored you with good looks, power, and prestige? Do you think you deserve it more than anyone else? Maybe God has given you all these blessings just for this moment when you could use all your power and do something good. And if you don't, maybe God will take it away from you just as quickly. Maybe you should use your power, your prestige, and do something good for your people. And to Esther's credit, the woman who has not been a good Jew up to this point takes Mordecai's words seriously and says, wow, I never thought of that. Maybe he's right. Maybe God has given me all these blessings just so I could do something good with them. And if I sit here and I'm selfish about it all, maybe God will take it away from me. So she says, and yes, that our, our people... Uh, Turn to the book of Esther and read chapter 4. Uh, can I read it? The sure. Then Esther told as a, report of, a, a reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in the city of Shushan and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, neither day nor night. I and my maidens will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king." though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther said. Esther waited the three days and went to the king. Now, when Esther goes to the king, uh, I have to tell the rest of the story because it's, it's worthy of a Woody Allen. Movie. Um, she comes to the king, who's uh, sitting there with uh, his right-hand man, Haman, and uh, she says, uh, the king sees her, and instead of saying, oh, you're not allowed to come visit me, Esther, you're gorgeous. What can I do for you? And she puts on a little act. She says, oh, kingy-poo, this is in Persian. Have I made you happy? And he says, yes, Esther, you've made me very happy. He says, really, really happy. Yes, Esther, very, very happy. What can I do for you? And she says, I'll do anything for you. What would you like? And she says, if I've made you really happy. Yes, Esther, you made me happy. Well, would you come to a party that I'm throwing tomorrow night for you? This is the king's language. He likes that because he heard Esther throws good parties. And she says, oh, and bring your boy Haman with you, too. Well, the next night she throws a party for the king and Haman, and the Bible describes it in great detail. This woman knew how to throw a barman's party, let me tell you. I mean, this is worthy of Goodbye Columbus. A fancy, fancy affair, and the king and Haman are there, and they're a little drunk, and Esther comes in, and the king says to her again, Esther, Esther, you made me so happy. And she puts on the same act. Oh, King Pooh, have I made you very happy? Yes, Esther, very happy. I want to give you a present. She said, well, I want to make sure I made you happy. Esther, you made me very happy. What do you want? She says, come to the party I'm going to make for you tomorrow night. That's even better. And bring him. Well, the king offers her half a kingdom, and all she says is come for a party. That's his language. So the next night he comes, and Esther has thrown a party, and the Bible describes it, the entertainment, the food. It's incredible. The king and Haman are drunk and reeling, and Esther comes in again. And the king says, Esther, you've just uh, outdone yourself. This is incredible. What can I do for you? And she goes through the act. Oh, King Epo, have I made you happy? Yes, Esther, you may made me very happy. You're really happy, really, really happy. What do you want? I'll do anything for you. And then she turns to the king and Haman and says, then don't kill me. And the king immediately sobers up. Mordecai, uh, excuse me, Haman is shocked. And she says, I and my people have been sold to Haman. And he's going to kill us all. And Haman says, oh my God, she's a Jew. Well, the king is shocked. Doesn't know what to do. It starts opens the door and goes outside to get some fresh air. uh, Haman falls at Esther's feet and starts pleading for his life. Esther rips her dress, jumps on top of Haman and starts screaming, Rape! Rape! He's attacking me! Safety! Safety! The king rushes back in. Mordecai has stationed soldiers outside the door who hear this, break in and grab Haman, and they start saying, He's attacking the queen, your majesty! And... Haman is foiled. Haman is taken out and hung. Esther saves the day. And this is a girl who was self-centered and didn't do anything religious. But when the chips were down, when Bayikra, when God called to her and said, put your money where your mouth is, babe, she did. And that makes her a, hero, a uh, great hero.
0: I am sure our listeners have been captivated by your retelling of the story but I'm also sure they have a number of questions. Is this a true story? Well, what's interesting is, for years, the rabbis didn't think it was a
1: true story.
0: In fact, if you read rabbinic Rabbis referring to the ancient rabbis of the 1st uh, uh, through 3rd and 4th century of right, the Common Era. Right. No, not right. you. This, no. The story, the story takes
1: place around the year 400 BCE. And the name of the king, that the, the king of Persia that is used, is Ahashverosh. This is the um, Persian spelling of what we in English say is Xerxes. Xerxes in Persian is Achashverosh, and you put an aleph in front of it for Hebrew reasons, so it's Ahashverosh. And that's Xerxes. The problem is that the story doesn't fit with King Xerxes. When you change the name of the king, if you change it to King Artaxerxes II, the story fits exactly with Persian history. So many people have suggested that the name of the king has been changed because the king comes out of the story looking like an idiot, and the Jews didn't want to make King Artaxerxes the great hero of Persia Artaxerxes II, they didn't want to make him look like a, an idiot, whereas Xerxes, the guy who got defeated by the Greeks, even the Persians thought was an idiot, so they put in the name Xerxes.
0: So, so that just to be stronger. clear for our listeners, yeah. um, many of our listeners will know that in 586, the remaining tribes of Israel were conquered by the Babylonians. And the tribes of Judah and Benjamin were expelled to Babylonia, but within a short period of time the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and therefore, while in Jewish history it is always called Babylonia, in truth, the uh hegemony of the land was in the hands of the Persians, which is why this story is centered in Persia and why there is such a large, until the last 70 years, uh, population in uh, Iran, the modern-day Persia. Yeah. I believe believe the
1: story has a lot of truth in it. Um, But the fact of whether it is true or apocryphal isn't really the important point. I think the important point is Esther's response When Vayikra, when God and Mordechai call to her and say to her, the chips are down, we're in trouble. We need somebody to stand up and do the right thing. Are you willing to put it all on the line? Are you willing to risk your cushy job for what's right? Are you willing to come out of hiding and stand up for other people? Are you willing to put it on the line to put your money where
0: your mouth is? So, you know, uh, S- Rabbi, S- uh, S- I'm a fan of mystery books. And when um, things happen in mysteries that appear to be a coincidence, the uh, protagonist always says there's no such thing as a coincidence. Uh, this week we're reading um, Shabbat Zahor. And we uh-huh. remember the Hebrews um, uh, quintessential villain. And next week uh, we read of Esther rising above and hearing God's call. And all of this has the background of uh, events in the Ukraine in which there appears to be a descendant of the Amalekites who has uh, forgotten all the norms of uh, humanity and human interaction. And so perhaps the Torah is uh, kind of calling upon us Uh, using this week's parasha call to remember our obligations to those who are um, endangered by uh, pure evil. Uh, We've run out of time. My guest this morning is Rabbi Eric Wisnia, and it has been a joy to listen to him expound on both the parasha and the holiday of Purim. You can hear a podcast of our show on iTunes or the chri.ca website for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and have a good day.